Good morning. There aren't very many of us, but still, oh, Wes is asking that I do that thing that people do where they say, you all have to come and sit closer. <laughs> so everyone, say, actually, you know, we can make it less awkward. How about during the first song, as you stand and as you're singing, you can make your way toward the front. It'll be like one of those churches where we dance in the aisles. It'll be great. So let's all stand. And as we sing, just sort of make your way more to the front. More front than back is what we're looking for. Hey, here they come. Nicely done.
Everyone needs compassion, a love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a Savior, the hope of
Father, we thank you for Christ who has done so much for us. We are here today to worship you because of Christ. And we pray that our worship will be pleasing to you. That it will help us to not only understand you more, but live in the fullness of who you are. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship this morning before you're seated. Well, as we gather for worship today, there are uh, things happening in the life of the church to make you aware of. Tomorrow night, I'm hosting a membership class, and it'll be in the room 105, right across from the library, church library, down the hall from the offices. Uh, if you haven't yet indicated to me that you're interested in attending and you're planning to attend, just let me know either today or early tomorrow so we can prepare materials for you. Wednesday evening, because of the college break, we will not be having children's ministries this week. Next Sunday, we'll gather for worship at 8, 20, 9, 40, and 11 as we move into the second Sunday of Lent. There are um, always a number of prayer concerns in the bulletin. We continue to pray for uh, those who are in need and grieving and working through difficult circumstances of life. We uh, do want to pray for the team that is in South Dakota this week and ask for God's grace upon them and, and their ministry there. And uh, we also want to pray for the family of Dick Farwell. Dick died yesterday morning. And uh, his arrangements will be, his memorial service will be next Sunday at uh, 2 o'clock at the Friendship United Methodist Church. So just want to make you aware of that and we offer our prayers for this family. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 23. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. 
And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, we'll invite the ushers forward to receive our offerings.
The altar is open for you if you'd like to use it as we pray together. Otherwise, please be seated. Father, because of Christ, we are here today. Because of Christ, we have peace and hope, joy and salvation. We cannot declare too much. Worthy is the Lamb who has redeemed us from our sins. We thank you that because of Christ, we have a new means of communicating with you and and of knowing that you hear us when we pray. Today we pour out our hearts in prayer for all who are struggling with grief and pain and loss. Those who are in need of healing from you. And we ask that you would bring it. Father, we pray today for Every person who is wrestling with issues at, in, at home, issues at work, friendships and family issues that spread beyond work and home. And we ask for your healing grace in every circumstance and in every situation. Father, today we pray for our world. So much violence and hatred and war such a a low view of life and your love for your creation forgive us and we pray that you will bring peace into places of war where where people are struggling for power and people are struggling for identity people are struggling to live in some places We ask you to bring your peace and grace to bear on every situation and every circumstance and that you would work miraculously. Father, we pray for your help in places of the world where people do not have enough food to eat or water to drink. They don't have places to sleep and live with the daily insecurity of just protecting themselves. We pray for your grace to bear in miraculous ways. We ask, Father, that you would use the leaders of the nations of the world, of this nation, of every nation, to bring help to people who are vulnerable and innocent and needy. Father, we ask that you will lead us into and through our Lenten pilgrimage. Continue to teach us through your word. Give us courage to live out your word. And prepare our hearts for the remembrance of Christ's death and for the celebration of his coming to life. And we ask all of this through him who is worthy. Amen. Thank you. 
truly is amazing how you love us. You love us in so many ways. We ask that you would help us to continue to experience your love through your word. We ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. History is filled with a litany of people who have been traitors. People who, for reasons of power, ideology, money, have um, betrayed their country, comrades, even their own families. And have changed the course of history in doing so. I went on the internet this week and looked up uh, various lists of traitors. And there are a lot of them. There are things like uh, sports figures who betrayed their city and went to another town. Or there are uh, traitors in lists of traitors in movies. And, and they put them in the top ten lists and things. And there were some similarities in the list. And you could particularly tell that the lists come from at least North America or the West. There are, there are names that may be familiar to you, names that may not be. Guy Fawkes was one of the people on the list. He, in the 17th century, uh, tried to blow up most of the British aristocracy. There are names like Richard Hansen and Aldrich Ames and Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. All of them American citizens who sold secrets to the Soviet Union. You go back far enough, you get the name of Brutus, who uh, betrayed his uncle Julius Caesar. And in this country, you think of traitor, of course, one of the names that pops to mind is Benedict Arnold, who, as an American general, decided to switch sides during the Revolutionary War. But without a doubt, the most common name that popped up on the list of historic traitors the number one person over and over and over again was Judas Iscariot. Judas is, is so connected with deceit and betrayal that as soon as we hear the name, that's what pops into our minds. I suspect that's one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of parents naming their children Judas. I don't think either of these two little ones are named Judas. Uh, it just doesn't happen. After the first service, someone came to me and said, Hi, I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Judas so-and-so. And it was weird, you know, to think about someone having that name. Because it's so connected to betrayal. And we see, and, and we know about that, and we get that connection. But I, I, I think as I've been reading through this story in Luke 22, it's come to me that there are some deeper things going on here than we often realize, or at least admit. Now, what Luke tells us in his 22nd chapter really needs to be placed in the context of, well, the whole book, but at least going back to the 19th chapter. In the 19th chapter, Jesus, Luke tells us that Jesus enters Jerusalem, what we call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And Jesus, up to this point, has spent very little time in Jerusalem, just really in and out, because he said, my time has not come yet. 
And he knows that when he comes, every time he comes to Jerusalem, this hotbed of political and and religious activity, things are going to happen that he isn't ready to have happen. But when he comes to, to Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, he's ready for things to happen. My time has come. And after he enters the city, he goes into the temple and he clears it out. And then he, then he begins to tell parables that condemn the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And then as they begin to confront him, he embarrasses them with his answers. And it's no wonder they are plotting to murder him. Isn't it ironic that the religious leaders, the spiritual leaders are plotting murder? And yet they are. And Jesus knows it. And the disciples know it. And certainly Judas knows it. It's interesting to me that Luke is very clear to tell us that the religious leaders don't go to Judas and ask him to betray Jesus. As though Judas puts off some kind of, you know, traitor vibe or something that they see in him. Judas goes to them. Judas approaches the religious leaders and says, I've got a deal for you. And you wonder, how in the world could he do that? Why would he do that? What would make him want to do that? Well, Luke very clearly says to us, it's Satan. Satan enters Judas. Satan is behind all of this that's going on as Satan is behind all the evil in the world. And Satan is driving it and Satan is pushing it. But the reality is, despite the work of Satan in Judas' life, Satan can only be in his life like that because Judas lets him. Judas has decided that he would rather listen to Satan than listen to Jesus. And what is it that that Satan uses to convince Judas to take this step? Well, we don't really know. There are theories. It might be something ideological. Judas and, and the other disciples, or the other disciples after Jesus' resurrection, are still thinking that the kingdom of Jesus is going to take place on earth. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they say, Lord, now is the time where you're going to restore your kingdom here on earth. They still don't get it. They eventually do, but at that point, they don't. So if they don't get it right after the resurrection, they certainly haven't gotten it before the crucifixion. And they believe that the, that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to, he's going to take out the Romans and restore the nation of Israel the way it used to be. And Judas sees in Jesus someone who can do that. And so he decides to push him because he's not going fast enough. And he thinks to himself, if he gets arrested, he'll stand up and fight and we'll take this thing. It might be that Judas is disillusioned with Jesus. He's watched Jesus and the way that Jesus operates and the plan that Jesus is establishing for how he's going to bring in his kingdom. And Judas is thinking, that will not work. Are you crazy? You can't do that. You can't can't get success that way. You can't overthrow a government like that. This is about war and fighting and power. And he realizes that's never going to be Jesus' agenda. And so in his disillusionment says, fine, I'll show you what I can do. And it's an act of vengeance. It might be something as simple as just money. You know, John tells us in his account of, of all of this that before, that before Jesus, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he's meeting with his disciples in a house and a woman comes up and says to him, or takes a jar of perfume and breaks it over his head and pours the perfume down over him. And she said, Judas is upset. 
Because he says this could have, he could have taken that perfume and sold it and gotten a year's wages out of it and given it to the poor. And John's parenthetical statement, his editorial comment is, Judas said that not because he wanted to help the poor, but because he was head of the treasury of the disciples and he had a habit of dipping into the till. And when Judas comes to the religious leaders, they offer him 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. We don't really know exactly what motivates him, what, what Satan uses to get Judas to do what he wants him to do. But we, do, we can see clearly that whatever it is, Judas has made the decision that something in this world is more important than Jesus is. That the way to bring about the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven is by his plan, not by Jesus' plan. That he understands the world better than Jesus does. And he's decided to stake his claim here with the things of this world rather than staking his claim with Jesus. And this is the natural result of that happening. When we come to verse 23 of Luke Luke chapter 22, Jesus has shared this meal with them. And and he's initiated the the Lord's Supper, the, the bread and the cup and... And he gets to the end of that and he says to them, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples look at each other and ask, how could either one of us, how could any of us do that? The NIV says they began to question among themselves, which of them it might be who would do this? The New Living Translation says that the disciples talked among themselves, began to ask each other, which of them would ever do such a thing? The reality is that the writers of the gospel seem to be implying to us that the answer to that question is any one of them. Any one of them. Judas doesn't betray Jesus because he's subhuman or because he is just so grossly evil or because he's a spy in Jesus' camp and he never really was a follower from the beginning. Judas betrays Jesus because he's a human being who wrestles with sin and evil in his life, just like every single one of those disciples sitting around that table. And next week, when we talk about the follow-up conversation to that question in verse 23, we'll see that very clearly. But here's the difficult part of making of, of that truth. Is that if every one of those disciples is susceptible to betraying Jesus, that means every one of us is susceptible to betraying Jesus. And that's a hard thing for us to grasp. And that's hard for us to to accept. Now granted, we're not saying that, that we will do what Judas did. That we would, we would actually sell out Jesus for some money. Or because of ideology. But the truth of the matter is, we turn on Jesus in all kinds of ways all the time. And yes, there are degrees of sin. There's no doubt about that. You know, there are degrees of of sin that some of the great moral monsters of history, Hitler and Mao and Stalin and mass murderers, things that that they have done that are at a different level than what we do. And we need to acknowledge that. And justice says there are different ways of of grading and, and, and handling those kinds of things and approaching them. But at the same time, as Richard John Newhouse says, the 
the complicity and the complexity of their sin and their actions is somewhere in our sinful hearts too. And our mantra is, I would never do that. I mean, I'm not that bad. My, my sin isn't that big a deal. And that's usually our defense mechanism. We minimize our sin. You know, I, I, I just wouldn't do that. I wouldn't go that far. I'm, I'm not that bad. And, and we deny our susceptibility to sin and to turn on Jesus and to go our own way. Even if it doesn't mean that we completely turn our backs on Jesus and we walk away from him, we continually wrestle with making decisions that say, I want to do what I want to do instead of what God wants me to do. And we have made claims that we're a friend of Jesus, just like Judas does, and yet we all the time make decisions that if people looked at us on the outside would say, I'm not sure that person is a friend of Jesus. Because we all wrestle with sinfulness. Jeremiah says in chapter 17, verse 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? We all have deceitful hearts. Newhouse goes on to talk about, he said, knowing myself, knowing the things that I do and the things that I don't do, in some mysterious way that I don't really understand, I have to admit that on the day when Jesus was crucified, I was there. And I wasn't just there observing, but I was there wielding the whip and driving the nails and thrusting the spear and putting the silver coins in my pocket. We ask ourselves, how could, how could we really betray Jesus? I don't really think that's true. And yes, we are not as bad as we could be, but every part of our existence is tainted by sin. And we have to come to acknowledge that. See, so we... We live in a culture that is completely, continually wanting to, to deny that. And yet at the same time, it's a culture that, that establishes practices because we betray each other all the time. You know, one of the ways in which we betray Jesus is betraying each other. The way we treat Jesus has a lot to do with the way we treat each other. And we have this culture that we've created of distrust for each other because we betray each other all the time. I was thinking about that. I was reminding you back to when we were working on our house. You know, we had, we'd never owned a house before. We had lived in parsonages. Our parents were both pastors, so they lived in parsonages. And so this was a new thing for us. So we finally found a, a bank and a banker that we liked, and we were working with them, a loan officer, working through all this with them. And and we had a number of meetings, and we came to we really like this woman and felt like we were building a relationship with her as we are getting this stuff worked out, felt like we trusted her. And then the day came where she said, now, who's going to be your lawyer for the proceedings of the closing and all the paperwork? And I don't know that I said this to her. I can't remember because it's been a few years back, but I can't remember. But I know I was thinking it to myself. Why do I need a lawyer? Why would I need a lawyer? Are, are you going to cheat me? Are you going to put things in this contract that, that are going to deceive me? Are you going to try to trick me? Are you going to, you're going to try to do things that, that you have promised me you're going to do, and, but you're going to put in the contract that you're not going to do it? I mean, I was pretty naive about this thing, but I thought, why would I need a lawyer? 
why, why can't we just say, look, you're honest, I'm honest, we'll, we'll deal with it. And the truth of the matter is, we don't live in that kind of world. And why is that? Because we betray each other all the time. We have created this culture of distrust because we don't treat each other the way we should. And that bleeds into how we treat God. It's the same thing. Because if we mistreat each other, the scripture tells us we're mistreating God. And when we mistreat God, we're going to mistreat each other. You can't separate that. And so while we may not be trafficking in human beings and we may not be committing mass murders and we may not be supporting perjury and we may not, you know, we may not bring down multinational companies by our greed and our actions, we gossip, we stretch the truth to protect ourselves. We respond to people in harsh ways instead of in love and kindness. We fudge our taxes. You know, you remember all the sins that John is, is described, or that Paul describes in his letters are written to the church. And it's this litany of things. And some of them we get, you know, we, we lust and we covet. And we go, okay, those are big ones. But he says, they also need to be careful about dissension and envy and jealousy. Because those can tear you apart as well. We're so, we're, we're so... We're so taught to deny our sin and to minimize our sin. And the church does that. We, the church, honestly, a lot of times doesn't help with that. Because we create an atmosphere where we don't feel like we can really be honest about our sins. We have this sense of, we've, we've given people this message that we sort of outgrow sin. You know, if you're, if you're a Christian long enough, then, then you kind of outgrow that. You don't have to worry about that anymore. I mean, that's certainly the message we're sending. Now, I see smiles on your faces, so I know you're going, well, yeah, we don't really do that. But that's sort of the image that we portray to people. And we don't have to do that anymore. And, and you know, we, we sort of act like, well, if I don't admit that I sin, then maybe I won't have to face the consequences. So we just act like we don't. Again, that's also built into our culture. What does the insurance company tell you if you have an accident? If you wreck your car, two things at the top of the list. Call the police and don't admit any liability. Because that can come back to get you. Right? And too often in the church, we portray that same image. But the reality of this whole thing is that if we... If we can't admit that we sin, then we're not proving that we're mature. We're actually doing the exact opposite. Because people who are mature in Christ understand the depth of their sin. Understand the depth of the susceptibility in their hearts. And we come to the place and, and we should be growing in our faith and we should be maturing. And we ought to be better able to handle the sins that, that we wrestle with. But it's not because we're so strong. It's because we've simply opened up more and more of our lives to Christ. But it still doesn't change the fact that we wrestle with sin. And hiding it doesn't help us. And what happens when we start thinking this way that we sort of outgrow sin, that that Christians don't sin anymore, we're actually doing is saying, we don't really need the cross. And we're never more susceptible than when we declare we don't need the cross. 
What we ought to be doing is standing up and sort of having you know, a weekly 12-step meeting. You know, we ought to be standing up and everybody stand up in front and, and say, Hi, I'm Wes. I'm a sinner. Not just that I used to sin and I'm, you know, I'm kind of done with that, but I still wrestle with sin. And I still wrestle with, with making selfish choices. And I still wrestle with wanting my way instead of Christ's way. And every one of us ought to, be, ought to stand up and say that very thing. Because here's the thing. When you do that, now you have said, I need the cross. And it's only when we begin to acknowledge the, the susceptibility within every one of us to sin and even to evil... To turn our backs on Christ. When we acknowledge that, we begin then to experience the power of the cross. Because that's why Christ came. Now, Christ didn't come because we're just, we have a few little problems that need to be tied up. That there's some loose ends in a few lives that need to be handled. He didn't come because, you know, we're, we're pretty good. We just need a little bit of a nudge. He went to the cross because we are sinners and our hearts are deceitful. And on our own, we will fail every single time. Any good that's in us at all is because of the cross. Because Christ has put that into us even from birth. But at some point we have to say, it's all about Jesus. And the cross is about my sin. In his first epistle, the Apostle John writes, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he goes back and says again, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. If we say, I don't really wrestle with sin that much. I don't, I'm really not that bad. I, I really think I'm okay. We are saying God's plan of salvation for the cross is unnecessary. And when we say anything that God wants to do is unnecessary, we're in essence saying God is a liar. The reality is God knows our hearts better than we do. And Jesus comes into this world for people who will, who will acknowledge that they need him. And we will acknowledge that we are dead without Christ. What's so fascinating is that what our sin makes necessary is exactly what saves us. And when we begin to think and feel despair about our sinfulness and frustration about our sinfulness and that besetting sin that keeps getting us over and over and over again, it's in that moment that we have to remember that the despair of our sinfulness is met by the love and the forgiveness of the cross. Matthew 27 tells us that Judas comes to the point where he realizes that he has made a huge mistake. And he is so filled with shame and remorse and guilt that he takes his own life. 
What a great tragedy. Maybe the greater tragedy is that Judas wasn't able to hear the words of Jesus as he hung on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. And he wasn't just talking to the Romans, and he wasn't just talking to the religious leaders. He was talking to Judas. And he's talking to you and me. Father, forgive them. I know their sinful hearts. I know their susceptibility to turn on me. I know their struggle to want to go their own way instead of my way. Father, forgive them. And all we have to do is receive the forgiveness. Not just once, but every day of our lives. To live in the grace and the power, in the love and the forgiveness and the mercy of the cross. In John's description of the Last Supper, he tells us that when Jesus arrives with his disciples and everyone gets situated, Jesus takes a basin of water and a towel and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And when he gets to Peter, Peter says, Oh no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you don't have any part with me. And it strikes me that there's an analogy there to what we're talking about today. That until we come to acknowledge that our hearts are dirty and that only Christ can cleanse them, we will never experience the fullness and the joy and the peace and the blessing. We'll never truly be connected to Christ as he created us to be. It's not easy to acknowledge our sinfulness. It's not easy to acknowledge our susceptibility to evil. It's not easy to acknowledge how often we make selfish decisions. But acknowledging it is the first step to experiencing the power and the grace and the love of the cross through Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to hear your call, to acknowledge our sin, and to experience your forgiveness. We pray this through Christ. Amen. I want to invite you to join with me in the prayer of confession that is printed on the screen. Well, let us pray together in unison. Powerful and forgiving Lord, by enduring the pain of the cross, you have shown us the price love must pay for taking sin seriously. The nails, the crown, The humiliation, mockery, and shame you went through delivered us from the stronghold of sin and enabled us to live in the freedom only you can give. That is the reality of the cross.
but not the reality of our lives. In our contentment, we forsake the transforming work of the cross in our lives. In our disobedience, we nullify the redeeming and forgiving power of the cross. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways in which we do not take our sin as seriously as you do. For what it costs us daily is nothing in comparison to what you have already paid. Help us to reflect on the mercies of your cross. And as we do, give us the strength and grace to take up our own and follow you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. For this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven. And gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're going to distribute the elements to you in your seats and we're going to do so in silence. Just to give us a chance to meditate upon our sin and upon the grace of God in Christ. As the bread is passed to you, tear off a piece, hang on to it until everyone has received a piece. And then we will eat together and we'll do the same with the cups. I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. If you're here today with your heart open to God and you acknowledge your your sin and your need for God, then you are wholeheartedly invited to receive these gifts from the loving and gracious hand of our Heavenly Father. Let us eat together.
recognition of our sin and in thanksgiving to God for his forgiveness. Let us drink together. Please stand and join us as we sing. Receive the benediction. 
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.